0: Hello, my friend. Welcome back to the club. How are you today? I'm thrilled. That's how I'm feeling today because we have Judy Cho, author of Carnivore Cure, with us. She's an NTP and a nutritional advocate for a meat-based diet. She says that animal foods gave her a second chance at life. Y'all, there are so many people who have found healing by switching to a meat-focused way of eating, and I've been wanting to do a podcast about that, have somebody on to share their experience. And so we have that today, and we you know, literally have the woman who wrote the book on it. So I'm absolutely thrilled. Welcome, Judy, to the Christian Health Club podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks uh, so much for having me, Chelsea. Yes, I'm just I'm thrilled that you're um have the time um taking the time to share with us. I would love for you to start by sharing what led you to a carnivore diet. What what was going on before? What led you to it? And then how did it change your health?
1: Sure. So I was plant based for about twelve years. Um, I did have occasional fish, uh, but in generally, I would eat just plants, uh, lots of salads, veggies. And I did it initially because I wanted to lose weight. I had probably an extra 10, 15 pounds I could lose. Um, I'm Asian American and typically Asians tend to be thinner. So there was always this desire to be really thin. And and then I went to UC Berkeley and a lot of people are plant-based there. And so I kind of fell into it and I stayed plant-based for about 12 years. And when I had my first son, I got really sick. So... Um, I think part of the issue was that within that 12 year uh, stint of being plant based, I also started struggling with an eating disorder and I started binging and purging in the evenings because I think I wasn't fueling my body properly. And so when I got pregnant, it was this battle of, one, I have to accept dealing, um, gaining weight and dealing with that. And then secondly is after I had my baby, it's how how quickly can I lose the weight and be back to my thin self? And so I struggled with a lot of that mental health issue and then struggling with the diet itself. And then everything kind of hit the wall because I tried nursing and six months into my nursing, still using behaviors and eating plant-based I ended up in the hospital, a mental hospital, because I had lost my memory and I was just a little bit off. They gave me uh, anti-psychiatrics. They gave me anti-depression medications. They said I was just uh, very depressed uh, from postpartum. And granted, this was six months after having my son. And then just went down these rabbit holes of maybe it's my eating disorder. I need to figure out self-care, you know, the value of myself, but even in those facilities, they would teach me that it's okay that you're plant-based, but you can never be low carb. And so I tried the moderation thing. I I tried the, okay, I'm going to practice intuitive eating. I'm going to practice mindful eating. And, and I would be good for a while. And I would be very mindful because now I had a bigger why. My why was my son and not getting sick again. But I would always end up falling again. And I would end up binging and then purging. And then there would be a lot of... Uh, self-hatred and uh, just anger towards myself. And I would just go through these cyclical cycles. And one of my close family uh, friends ended up trying keto. And so I tried doing it. And what I found was it would help. Um, It would help a lot. I think the fat that I needed for my brain and hormones really helped me. But again, those a little allotment of carbs got me eventually falling. So I guess within every few months, I would end up falling, I would binge and I would be like, okay, so at first I'm starting with if it fits your macros, maybe I can have a small Snickers bar. But then a lot of times that small Snickers bar would then completely have me off the rails and eating everything that's in the pantry. And then I would binge and purge again. And so finally, I saw I had a friend that recommended I know you're going to think this is crazy, but there's a crazy diet called the carnivore diet that's meat only. And at that point, I wasn't really eating meat still, but I was honestly desperate. I was, um, I just had my second son and I was scared that I would get sick again. So I went all in, it was supposed to be for one, two weeks. And, and now it's been four or five years. And now I'm advocating for the carnivore diet because one, I never struggle with mental health. Um, I don't have any eating disorder behavior. Sure. I would love to be thinner some days and I want to restrict, but I don't do it. And, um, and my doctor, my psychiatrist back then told me I just was born wired in a way that I would have to take antidepressants for the rest of my life, that my lot in life was that I was just mildly depressed always. And so to counter that, I would have to take medication the rest of my life. Well, I'm here today telling you that I have not been on any type of psychiatric meds for four or five years plus.
0: That is amazing. <laughs> I mean, and what a what a 180. I can't imagine um, you weren't more resistant. I guess that you, your why was so big to, to go from a plant-based to just all meat. That's, that's pretty hardcore. Yes.
1: Yeah. It was, (laughs) um, I mean, when it comes to my children, I will do anything. And so that the why became so big to get better. And then when I tried the meat only for just two weeks, a lot of things changed that the view of, carbs is no longer a food and it's no longer part of the decision making of, okay, wait, can I have that? So I have 20 grams of carbs I can eat today. What should I pick? Should I be healthier and pick the veggies? Or should I, you know, have a smoothie that's low carb and maybe have a little bit of um, carbohydrates in that? Once you remove that decision making, it's no longer any of that's allowed. And when you and as much as that seems so restrictive for somebody that struggled with eating disorders, for somebody that struggled with weight management and and then um, considering a plant based diet being so healthy, when I made that switch and these carbohydrates were no longer viewed as food, that decision making power became so freeing to me that now my diet is so much more freer than when I had any amount of carbohydrates that were allowed.
0: Mm. That reminds me of something I've heard you say in your podcast and read in your book about this the idea of abstaining versus being a moderator, and which I love this concept. It comes from Gretchen Rubin's Better Than right. Before. I've talked about it on the podcast before. But tell us, and it kind of goes along with what you just said, tell us what your thoughts are about that.
1: Yeah. So when I, you know, in the eating disorder facilities, they always talk about we need to learn to be moderators. So a lot of us, obviously, while we're in there, we ask, well, how do we know we're fixed? How do we know that we don't struggle with an eating disorder anymore? And a lot of the registered dietitians, they would say, well, you have to basically go a couple years without having triggers after a meal of not using behaviors whatsoever. And then you can, I guess, say that you're cured. And so I really, really took that to heart and I practiced it. So I would uh, bring out my intuitive eating, mindful eating papers, and I would try my hardest to, you know, be mindful of how much I'm feeling, how, how much I'm full. But what I realized is in those places, everything was about moderation. So if you cannot have a cupcake after your carb heavy meal, then you're not fixed. If you get triggered because you have to eat that cupcake and then after you eat it, you feel bad or guilty or any type of adverse emotion, then you are not fixed. And that was something I struggled with a lot because I self-blame because my registered dietitian, the expert is telling me I have to moderate. And until those thoughts are no longer part of my repertoire, then I am broken. And so I kept thinking I'm broken. I'm broken no matter how much I test myself with pizza, with muffins, with whatever it may be. I, I have those f- feelings of getting triggered. And so in my nutritional therapy school, we were um, we were recommended to read certain books. And one of the books I read was Better Than Before by G- Gretchen Rubin. And she talks about addictions and how all of us are wired in a certain way when it comes to compulsory behaviors that we tend to lean in one way or another. So there are moderators, which basically moderate. And so saying to them that they can absolutely have zero of something is really terrifying for them. And, and the way that our world works, we tend to say that everyone should live in a moderating type of world, but on the flip side, there are also abstainers and abstainers are basically when you tell them that they have a little, that they can handle of anything. That's really what makes it very difficult for them. So when you think of addictions and if you think of food as an addiction, we, 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 When children are young, when babies are crying, we're like, oh, they probably need milk. So let's feed them um, the breast or let's feed them formula. When our child is crying, we think, "Okay, let's let's fix that boo boo with some ice cream. So we already naturally our culture leans on food for comfort. And so for people that then have an addiction towards food, the question becomes when an alcoholic or a drug drug, you know, druggie tries to use Um, When they're trying to get off these addictions, we don't say, well, you know, as an alcoholic, you should have one little sip of alcohol a day. And then when you can do that and then you don't want more, then you're finally healed. No, we tell them abstinence is key. We do that with um, with all types of addictions that are um, documented in the psychiatry box. So we should view food in the same way. Some of us are just wired to be abstainers and we do best when we abstain. And if you think about that, so when you tell a food addict that when they struggle, when they celebrate, when they're stressed, they always turn to carbohydrates or foods for, uh, for stress relief. When you tell them, well, you can just have a little amount, that becomes really difficult. But again, if they just look at that as carbohydrates are not food, then it can have so much power in healing. And so when I learned first that, oh, there are people that are actually abstainers, where the world is very black and white, where they're either, you know, on either extremes, when they do something, they go all in. These are the types of personalities that are very abstainer personalities. Um, another uh, hint of it would be kids or children that were raised with very authoritative authoritarian parents. Um, it, it could usually just be one of the parents. But if a parent was, you have to study, you have to do these things, you have to Th- do these things that then, if you don't do it in that way or don't do it good enough, then you are not good enough. So, a lot of then, these children that then become adults, when they do these diet mentalities and they do a diet, and let's say they veer off and they have a Snickers bar, and then they realize I just failed and, and they start repressing themselves just like their parents would have in the past. And so, their punishment is, Well, I already screwed up the diet. I'm going to binge. That also can be um, abstainer related. So, the question becomes, We have all been trying to live in this moderator world. But what if some of us are natural abstainers? And while it seems so crazy and so restrictive to go just meat only, maybe for some of us, that is the key to true healing. And so if you've tried moderating your whole life, well, why not try just abstaining? And you can always introduce back again when you feel like you've healed enough and when you're ready. But if you've never tried abstinence, I highly recommend it because for me, that was the key to true healing.
0: Yeah. And you said that being abstinent from carbs 99% of the time was much harder than being 100% abstinent. Absolutely. Um, and I think that's really powerful, everything you just said. Um, wow. Well, um, I'd love to hear. This is so great because when I reached out to you to ask to see if you could come on the podcast, um, you were said, yes. And you said, I'm I'm excited because faith played a big role in my yes. journey. And I haven't had a lot of opportunity to talk about that. And so see y'all, that was Holy Spirit. <laughs> that was God working right there. And I reached out to Judy and it just worked out. And so I, I wanted to ask you about that and ask if you would share that with us.
1: Yes. So I was raised in a Presbyterian church, born and raised, baptized when I was first born. And you know, in my teens, I said, "Okay, not, not now, God. I, I want to live my life. I want to, you know, enjoy the worldly things." And so I still went to church. Um, I think past college, I would go occasionally, but you know, I was just a Sunday Christian type of thing, and and I was really far from God, to be honest. And but as I started serving and um, I had a family and I was trying to, I guess, advocate for this meat only diet. I get a lot of feedback from so many different camps, whether it's vegans, whether it's from the Standard American Diet Registered Dietitians, whether it's that I'm not a doctor and I'm not qualified enough, even though I'm board certified in holistic nutrition, whatever the things came, it's I knew I was fighting an uphill battle. And so there was a period in my, I guess, sharing that I shared about how eating too much beef liver or any type of organ meat can be excessive. And sometimes we have to be watchful of that. Well, the carnivore community wasn't that appreciative of that content for the majority of the people. And so I, I was at really a fork in the road. So I knew that the standard American community wasn't really a fan of mine. My family outside of my parents were thinking I'm crazy for sharing a meat only diet. And then the vegans obviously have their own stint against me as well. And so now my own community was also against me for sharing that. How can you say that organ meats? You can actually do too much of that. And so I really struggled. I was like, well, if I'm sharing content to really serve people, and I know in my heart of hearts, that this is really to better the people and not because I'm trying to get clicks or follows or likes. And and it was really, really hard. So there were many nights that as a human, I would see content about me and just really ripping my character and I would cry. And I don't know what happened at that time, but I really just started leaning on reading scripture. And I would read all these different uh, chapters and it would just bring me peace that I never understood my whole life. As somebody that struggled with an eating disorder, a lot of personalities that struggle with eating disorders, we tend to be people that really serve others. We put our needs last. And and so in serving the community, I tend to do that. I put out all this content so I can help and I can serve, I can serve my clients, I can serve my family and my needs kind of come second. Well, when my community no longer is loving me in that moment, it's like, what do I do? Right. I'm a natural people pleaser. And so reading the Bible and reading scripture where just like, um, I was, it was, I think it was God's, I, I totally believe God was helping me this way, but every evening, me and my children, we we watched these like little Bible videos and there was one about Nehemiah. And, you know, I am not super fluent with the Bible, but I was like, OK, I'm going to listen to this one. And he's talking about building the wall and everyone was opposed to that. Right. So he's like, no, no, I, I have to build this wall. I, I have to build the wall back up. And even though there were so many people against him, he did what he felt in his heart. And when I watched that video clip with my children, I was like, okay, God, I get it. And I just cried watching that. But I knew that what I'm doing and what I'm sharing, whether people think it's, again, for popular or I don't know what uh, reasons. Um, I knew that in my heart that I was sharing the right information. And that just built my f- faith faith a lot more. Um, I It's not more about I just want to be loved by everyone on social media. I, um, it's not about that. It's not about being the most popular, I, I do what um, God puts on my heart. And it is this whole share and this whole realization that the community can turn on you at any second um, made me realize that we are all flawed. We are all human. We can um, we may follow things that may just be very temporary, but God will always be there. And and so no matter what I share now, I know my ground is the foundation is so, so strong that I will keep doing and sharing until the day I die. Mm, amen to that. Oh. That's awesome. I'm so glad that
0: um I'm so glad that you found him in that. I, I, I found God in in this as well and you know through nutrition and healing and, and such. Um speaking of um people that might go against what you're saying. <laughs> let's talk, let's talk about this cuz I feel like there are so many biblical health advocates out there that would say we should only eat plants sure. because they came first in the Bible. And that's what Adam and Eve ate in the garden. And so that must be what God intended us to eat. And so um I just like to get people's thoughts on that. I'm really curious about yours. what What is your thought
1: about that? Sure. So, you know, just as I mentioned, I wouldn't say that I'm so knowledgeable about the Bible. I've read it and I read scripture often and, um, and obviously I go to church and Bible study and such. But the way I like to look at the Bible and my relationship with God in a very holistic, maybe very simplistic way, but... There's a couple things. So first of all the Old Testament, um ever since Jesus is coming, there's a lot of rules in the Old Testament. Technically, if we were following the Old Testament, we shouldn't be really eating much pork. I think there's certain shellfish we shouldn't be eating as well. And there's a lot of other laws, right? There's a lot of things we cannot do. But that I think that was the whole thing about Jesus coming. It's that our faith is now more about grace and Um, our relationship with God, rather than works and deeds. And these are the things I should do to therefore go to heaven. So that's my one kind of biggest arching way of, you know, the whole, what would Jesus do type of way of living my life. But also, if you think about the Bible, there's, regardless of if they ate plants or manna, they always, when God always wanted the ultimate sacrificial gift, it was always, the, the fattiest cuts of meat, right? So if you think about the parable of the prodigal son, the the father was so excited that he found his son that was gone for so long. And so his thing was go get the fattened calf because we need to celebrate. So in celebration, we always were um, giving animals and the the most prized meat. So I I use that as that's probably ideal in what we're supposed to be eating.
0: Yeah. Well, I agree. And I mean, I'm like, well, if he only wanted to see plants, then, you know, he gives us meat right. in Genesis 9-3. So, <laughs> hello. And then in, in Leviticus, you know, speaking of the food rules, I mean, he specifically outlines, um, you know, you're you're saying how Jesus made all foods clean. And, and so spiritually, yes, we are not... Um, we are not judged on what we eat. But I do like to point out that, I mean, God went so far as to say, here, these are the meats that I would like you to sure. eat. And so, I mean, I don't think he's going to go that far. And if if meats were, you know, quote unquote bad, or if we should never have, you know, if we're not meant to meet, eat meat, I don't think he would... Have done that, and so I think people just kind of forget about that, about that part—the plant-based people. I mean, I'm like, don't you know?
1: Yeah, I mean, even with the Bible, uh, that one story where they Jesus made you know five fish and two loaves, or um, there's always meat with all of this. So I don't, I don't think that God intended us um, to be plant-based. But in regards to the if we should be eating a variety of plants, I mean, I know that there's a lot of talk that. There's a lot of grains in the Bible, and I just don't think that we are eating the same grains that they were eating back then. I mean, most of our grains are genetically modified. Uh, We adulterate a lot of the grains that we are consuming. Um, We we think we're almost smarter than God and smarter than nature, and so we— Then genetically modified plants, we start using all these chemicals that were not naturally intended for us, and that we don't even prepare them traditionally the way that they were meant. So we don't soak and we don't, you know, clean them in the way that they were intended to be healthy. And so I think that's another reason why maybe grains were mentioned in the Bible, uh, versus the grains that we're eating now that are much more toxic to us.
0: Yeah. Cause I was going to ask you about that. Like, you know, cause Bible people ate a lot of grains right. and a lot of bread and, you know, and so I think that's another kind of hang up for people as well, like all the plants and all the grains. And, um, but in, and that's one thing I I remind people too, is we live in a different yes. world now. It's not the same plant foods. And, um, and this can kind of lead us into our discussion about, you know, the, the difference between animals and, and the animal kingdom, the plant kingdom, and, and maybe what they offer. But, Um, nowadays, I mean, plants have a lot of issues beyond their, um, kind of their, their base issues, I guess we'll talk about, but being sprayed. And I mean, Bible women didn't have to deal with that, you know, they weren't grinding, you know, wheat with glyphosate, you know, and we have all these, these toxic chemicals on our plants today. And so that's a major problem. Well, um,
1: let's kind of, oh, did you have? Yeah, I I was just going to say that. um, I also think there's a lot that we don't understand in the Bible, right? So we're leaning on our understanding to then rationalize what the Bible says, and therefore that's what we should eat exactly. We don't know exactly what manna is or what that bread is. I'm I'm sure historical people can go back, and that's where my knowledge of the Bible is limited, but If we just, you know, it's not like the cow has evolved so differently than what was in the Bible. And so if you want to add some plants and you feel best on it, I do think you should just trust your own body. But if you don't do well with plants, the reason can be we are adulterating the plants that were naturally intended. A lot of the plants that we eat today did not exist even 100 years ago. So we have to understand that we have bred a lot of the things, even our fruits, they are not normal fruits. If you look at the original banana, they do it does not look like what it looks like today. So that argument of we should eat these grains or we should eat these fruits or the wine because God said we can. But how do we know it's the same? And And for sure, the way that we are breeding our plants, they're not the same. So we can't use that. And I just have a hard time really saying that's valid, because we we're leaning on our own understanding to say, I understand the Bible to that level. So therefore, it says fruit. So therefore, we can eat our modern day fruit, but it's not the same thing. They might have the same word, but the definition is probably very different.
0: I've seen some pictures you've posted in social media, like the, like the banana. I'd never seen that before the difference in like a modern day banana and old banana. I was like, oh, whoa, that, right. that doesn't really look that appetizing actually. <laughs> like the nice plump bananas we eat right. today. Um, Also, I kind of think it's interesting that, you, um, you know, in the recommendations that God gave when it comes to eating meat, you know, one of them is are the ruminant animals. And and kind of one of the beautiful thing about ruminant animals is that they go through this extensive digestive process because they have these four different stomach chambers and and they do have an extensive detoxification yeah. process that's happening. And so I always say, you know, the the earth nourishes the animal and the animal in turn nourishes us. And it's a that's a beautiful design by our creator. And those ruminant animals are essentially cleaning a lot of the plant foods, digesting, breaking them down, making them usable to us in a way that benefits us, that um that would not be if we were eating them directly. And so that whole concept fascinates me as well to um think of that in the, you know, in the ruminant animal sense. And so I don't know. I just Geek out on that kind of stuff. I love it. Um, Well, I I think that for so many people, it's just, it feels so counterintuitive to think that plants could be harmful because we live in, you know, we're in such a plant centric dietary space. You know, even in the holistic community, there's just so much plant based, plant based, plant based. You know, three quarters of your plate should be plant foods. And so it's hard for people to kind of wrap their mind around this. And so share with us some of the ways that plant foods can be problematic for health that, you know, people aren't really thinking about. Yes.
1: So the simplistic way to think about all living things is that they don't want to be eaten and they want to continue their offspring. So animals are able to run from their predators, whereas plants, they can't do that. But they still want to continue their offspring. So how do they do that? And the easiest way to think about it is they c- contain their own toxins. So that the goal is that if an animal or person ate them, that they would get sick and that they would say, okay, I can never eat that plant again. And so when we think about gluten, at this point, I think everyone acknowledges that gluten is harmful for certain people, especially if you have celiac disease. Well, gluten is an anti-nutrient. It's a type of protein that's within the plant. And for some people um, in the human species, we get really sick. And if you understand that concept, then you can understand how all plants have some type of anti-nutrient. So every single plant, in order to survive for this long, has some type of toxin within the body or within its body so that you will ideally not eat them so that they can then continue life. And so if you think of that about it that way, then there's many different types of anti-nutrients. Another one is oxalic acid, which is oxalates. If you look at people that struggle, struggle with kidney stones, when they leave their hospital, they have a dietary regimen that they need to follow. If you look at that dietary regimen, it's a low oxalate diet. They may not say that it's an anti-nutrient, but essentially they are removing all foods such as dark chocolate, such as spinach, such as turmeric that has really high oxalic acid. So again, if you are sensitive to oxalates, um, if you struggle with kidney stones or any type of kidney imbalance, you probably want to stay away from foods that are rich in oxalic acid. I can go on and talk about many different things. I think um, Dr. Steve Gundry, as much as he's very leaning towards plant-based, I think he does incorporate meats, but very few. But he's also, he's brought up in the mainstream about lectins. Uh, Lectins is another anti-nutrient. They're in a lot of the... root. like uh, the nightshades and a lot of the grains and other foods like that. So when you think about all plants, all plants have anti nutrients, and it's figuring out whether you are sensitive to all of them, or that, um, or that you maybe there's this particular one that you need to kind of uh, be away from. But The best way to figure that out instead of removing one thing at a time, because that can take forever, is to try a meat-only diet and then slowly reintroduce plants, but with the plants that have the least amount of anti-nutrients. The reason why plants are oftentimes not ideal is they have poor nutrient absorption. So for example, we tend to think that spinach has a lot of iron. Well, the iron that's in plants are um, different types of iron that is in um, animal meat iron. And so that's why you see a lot of vegetarians and vegans. Um, Even myself, when I had my first child, um, I was diagnosed with anemia. So they started telling me to take iron supplements, although I was consuming a pound of spinach a day, which should have been enough iron for me to not be anemic. It's because our body, a lot of the plant-based nutrients, they are required to be converted into the usable form for our body. And a lot of us were not able to do that. The other example is um, when we take omega threes from, uh, I think it's from flax seeds and other seeds. So they produce the um, a different type of omega three than then that then has to get converted into the DHA and EPA form. Well, there are some people with the The genetics that don't allow for that to happen. So they can have all the walnuts, all the flax seeds they want, but they are not going to convert that. I think it's ALA, but it's not going to convert into DHA and EPA. Or they could just consume a little bit of salmon. So these are the things that we don't talk about when we see all this nutrient density in nutrition. We hear um, iron, uh, spinach has so much iron, and we hear the flax seeds have so much omega-3. Sure, from a very high level view, that's technically true. But when you get into the nuances of nutrient absorption and utilization by the body, that's when things differ. There's also vitamin K and K2. Uh, Vitamin K is not as absorbable in the plant-based foods versus if you get the K2 from animal foods. Beta carotene, um, carrots, you think about, oh, carrots are so good for your eye health. Well, beta carotene has to be converted to the usable form of vitamin A. And that's the only way you can absorb it. Or you also have to consume fat with it because vitamin A is a fat-soluble vitamin. Or you can have animal foods that have the, um, the, the version of retinol that's basically you can absorb it as vitamin A. So these are things that are not talked about. They're so nuanced, but it's so important when you don't have good gut health, meaning that you cannot convert these nutrients in the vegetable form or the plant-based form, to the animal based form. And so when you are not then feeding good enough raw materials for your body to then use them for um, growth and health and to building blocks, um, then you will have malabsorption and you'll have, I guess, nutrient deficiencies from that. The other thing is a lot of animals, uh, I mean, a lot of plant based foods, there's not enough quality uh, fats. So sure, you can get olive oil, you can get avocado oil and coconut oil, I think those are the best plant based fats. The issue with some of them is, unfortunately, a lot of the olive oils with studies, and I can give you some of the links to some of the studies, but most of them are adulterated with other seed oils. The issue with avocado is even worse. So there's a lot of studies that say about 85% of all avocado oils, even though you're paying a really pretty penny for them, they're mostly adulterated with other seed oils so that people can make money off of it. So then when you think of that, that only limits you then to maybe coconut oil. Well, coconut oil, if you maybe if you get the unrefined version and you get the cold pressed, it might be ideal. But it's again, it's very limiting and, you know, it's just evolutionary. Is that consistent with our what the way that we should be eating? I don't think all of us were, you know, in cultures where we were supposed to be consuming coconut fat. Maybe it's an option, but I think most people don't eat that fat every single day on a plant-based diet. And so then you risk your health of hormones, which all your sex hormones, all your hormones that support mental health and neurotransmitters, they use uh, cholesterol as a building block. Well, you get cholesterol from fats. And yes, your body can produce some, but it's not enough. I mean, that is why I struggled with mental health on a plant-based diet. So if you're not getting enough fat for your hormones, and you'll know if you start losing your period, if your periods are inconsistent, if you get per, uh, perimenopause early, if you get really bad hot flashes, these are all indicators that you're eating probably the wrong foods and not getting enough fat. And so when you're eating a plant-based diet, so one, again, uh, poor nutrient absorption, not enough high quality fats, and then the gut disruption, right? We talked about lectins. Um, there's also phytates. That's another type of antinutrients. The reason we call these anti-nutrients or against nutrients is because a lot of these plant-based foods carry these toxins or these anti-nutrients that bind to other minerals. So as an example, coffee tends to have, I think it's phytic acid, I might be incorrect with that, but they also contain tannins. We revere tannins in the plant-based world saying that it's really good for us, it's an antioxidant. But if you consume coffee with your meat, well, coffee the anti nutrients in it, the tannins, um, it binds to minerals. And I think it's uh, magnesium and iron. I can't remember off the top of my head. But essentially, you think you're getting a lot of the minerals from your meats, but it's actually binding to them so that you're not absorbing them. So I always recommend for people that want to eat plants to eat them away from your nutrient-dense meals. So if you want to have variety, flexibility, I'm totally for that. But eat them away so that you make sure that you are absorbing the nutrients from your meats that have zero anti nutrients, zero things that are binding to your minerals and uh, vitamins in your meats that will then, um, you know, basically not allow you to absorb those nutrients. So these are some of the reasons why plant based foods can be toxic to your body.
0: <laughs> Just a few of them. Um, when you're talking about the the, you know, the plant-based fats and and I did a I did do a podcast about you know um PUFAs and seed oh, oils right. and such and I think it's interesting if we you know if we think about so many of the the seed oils especially obviously were not even did not even exist like until 100 150 years ago right but even before that if you think of um people living in America 150 200 years ago I mean they were not eating coconut oil right. and, you know, avocado oil and e- even olive oil, you know, like, because it wasn't really na- it's not native. Right. And they weren't flying it in from Italy because that's not <laughs> what was going on 150, 200 years ago. And so what were they eating? They were eating um, animal fats. Um, y- you know, the, the naturally occurring fat that is made by, and in meat or maybe butter, um, ta- you know, the tallow, all of those things, and all those things that we've been scared away from right. um, by the conventional health community. Um, but you have, to, I just sometimes I'm like, y'all, it's common sense, you know. It's just you got to think about this before you just blindly follow um, some of these these dietary um, recommendations that we've had over the years. So I, I, yeah, I think that's a that's a good point. Um, well, I think that if somebody's considering, you know, OK, well, if I was going to do this meat based diet and I wasn't going to eat plants, you know, m- whether just for a little while or um, maybe for an extended period of time, because, you know, we can use this as a therapeutic right. approach as well. But I think it freaks a lot of people out because they think they're going to be missing out on key nutrients, maybe like vitamin C, something we associate more with um, plants, or maybe that they're going to say, I, you know, I need fiber. How am I going to get fiber if I'm, I'm only eating meat, which leads to the worry that I'm never going to poop again if I'm only eating meat. Right. So can we talk about these things? And do we need to be worried about nutrient deficiencies, fiber deficiencies, uh, a pooping deficiency? Like give us the scoop on all that.
1: Yeah. So from a, just a logical perspective, I always find it fascinating that when we are eating the standard American diet, we're eating pizza, and occasionally we eat fast food restaurants, we never worry about nutritional deficiencies, right? We don't worry about someone eating that way and thinking they're missing nutrients. I think a lot of people actually don't get enough of the vitamin C anyway on a standard American diet, unless you are consuming a lot of fruits, and so it's interesting that people say that. And then the same thing with fiber. I think in general, the average American does not get a lot of fiber too. So it's just fascinating that when finally someone tries to change their diet, right? So if I, when I was eating pizzas and uh, eating very f- f- limited foods before, Um, but not eating any meat. Everyone was like, wow, Judy, you're so healthy. You're so thin, you look great. But then as soon as I went meat only, people are are like, oh my gosh, you're going to die. Where's your vitamin C? Where's your fiber? How are you pooping? And that is so the saturated fats are so bad for heart health, you're going to have a heart attack. And it's interesting that, you know, we swing the pendulum so much in our logic. But if you think about the average American, when we moderate our foods, we eat a lot of junk food and not once does someone say hey, maybe you're eating too many Hershey Kisses or something that has zero nutritional benefits. But with that said, um, so in my Carnivore Cure book, I talk about studies where um, there was one particular study where they had different people in, in the study eating different amounts of fiber. So there was a group that had almost zero fiber, there was a group with moderate, and then there was a group with higher amounts. And I'm sorry, I can't tell you the exact amounts. But after a certain period of time, the people with the lowest amount of fiber felt the best. So they were then at the second part of the study was you can choose how much fiber you wanted to eat. And the people that felt the best were the people that were eating very limited to zero fiber. And so they continued to eat that way. So it's sort of telling that maybe we think fiber is beneficial for us. But for a lot of people, fiber actually constipates them. And that's where when people have loose stools, the general recommendation at uh, for a standard care doctor is to per- give you fiber. It doesn't necessarily help you go; it helps to bulk up your stool, and then it will. Um, so, if again, if you're having loose stools, then you won't have as many loose stools. So. I know that's um, a thought that a lot of us have, but there are studies that show that low fiber um, really helps motility and which is really different than what we also say. But there's also a thing called user um, healthy user bias. So we come to think that a diverse microbiome or that, um, that fiber, lots and lots of fiber is so good for us because when they were getting um, information from populations of people, what they were doing was they were collecting samples from people that are generally healthy and then also comparing it to people that are obese or that are unwell. And the thing is that they found that, okay, so certain healthy populations, they have a diverse Um, microbiome, or they also consume a lot of fibrous foods. The thing about that is there's always more context to that. And that's what they call the healthy user bias, meaning that if we all hear news headlines and information, and in schools, we're taught that plant-based is healthy, there tends to be a habit um, about people as well. So then the people that are eating red meat are going to be the ones that are a bit more rebellious. They probably are likely to be smokers. They don't care as much about their weight. And so the red meat eaters will tend to be rebellious and do things that are maybe not necessarily healthy for their body. Whereas if you look at the people that are healthy, um, maybe they go to the gym more often. And so they are told not to eat as much red meat. So they limit the meat, but they eat a diverse amount of plants which include fibers and then their microbiome shows diversity all of these things though um, as much as we think it's just the diet but it's a lot more than that and that's why they call it the healthy user bias the People that are healthy, they also have a lot more lifestyle habits that are different. They probably don't break the law as much. Um, They'll probably prioritize sleep. They'll manage their stress. They'll do other things. And it's so the diversity in the microbiome, the amount of fiber is just an effect of their actual choices. But it is not those things. It is not the diversity in the microbiome. It is not the Um, the amount of fiber that they're consuming that is actually the reason or the root cause reason that they are healthy. Does that make sense?
0: It does. Yes, it does make sense. I mean, well, you hear that, you know, you have to, you have to eat 30 different varieties of plants a week to keep our microbiome healthy. And so I think, again, it's one of those concerns that people have if I'm going totally, you know, even meat based, maybe not even full carnivore, but more, more meat on the plate um, that they would be missing out on that ability to um, get enough variety of plant foods to feed the, the bacteria. But you're saying that's not, that's not an issue? Yeah. So
1: in my client population, they do a lot of stool tests because let's say they have H. pylori or um, it's not SIBO actually, but it's like maybe they have candida or, um, or maybe they have a uh, parasite. The, so we do these comprehensive stool tests. And what I can tell you is part of that test, they will show you the diversity of the microbiome and your short chain fatty acids, which arguably we get from plant-based foods, right? So they say that a lot of these uh, pre uh, prebiotic foods, which are a lot of plant foods, will then feed your gut to then produce short chain fatty acids for gut health. Well, you can also get that from butter because one of the short chain fatty acids is butyrate, which is also the same Latin word that derives butter. But um, when I look at that test, um, although we're not looking for the microbiome diversity or the short chain fatty acids, what I can tell you is that it the results are all over the map. So whether um, all my clients are meat-based or meat-focused um, or they're zero-carb uh, zero carnivore, and there is no rhyme or reason with their short-chain fatty acid results or their diversity in their microbiome. Some people have really high acromencia, which supposedly if it's too low, that's why you're obese. Well, I have obese clients that have high acromencia, and, and then there's people that with a low acromensia, there's people that have high propionate acetate Butyrate and some that have just average, and some that are low in some of them. There's no rhyme or reason. And I think that's where we have to be really smart with what we're listening to. There are people in the microbiome space that'll say, This particular strain does this thing. And if it was that simple, we would all be taking that probiotic and we would all be fixed from everything. It's just we are God has built our bodies to be so complex and it works with so many different things in our lifestyle. And we have to trust. Our bodies, right? God gave us innate wisdom. And if we know that we're about to eat something rotten, our stomach turns and we're trying hard not to throw up. And with that same vein, if you want to try meat only and then add some plants, listen to your body. Take that time and see do I really need that vitamin C? Do I really need that fiber to go? And the best way is to try it yourself and then to decide, okay, this worked for me or this didn't work for me. But make sure you give yourself enough time. Um, in terms of the vitamin C, I just wanted to bring it up. So there's a few things about vitamin C. One is that there was that scurvy study where there was a lot of sailors that had um, been on a boat and half of the people got scurvy. They said argumentatively that it was vitamin C deficiency. And so that's why they got scurvy. Well, the all the sailors ate the same diet and only half of them got scurvy. So the question becomes, maybe it's a genetic thing. Why? Why did only half of the people get scurvy? The other thing is vitamin C um, and glucose, which is sugar, they have one type of receptor that they compete with. So the question becomes, when I was doing the research on vitamin C and our daily values that have increased over the years, are we increasing the vitamin C amount because we are consuming so much more sugar so that the competition against vitamin C is much more So then is that why we are doubling the amount of vitamin C in the daily value requirements every 20 years? Is it because we're consuming too much sugar? What I've seen in the carnivore space is that almost no one, I can't say no one, but almost no one has ever suffered from scurvy. So the fears of the lack of vitamin C is not really warranted. Now there are foods with vitamin C. There is a little bit of pork that has vitamin C. I think beef has some. It's very... Minor, but there is some, and then shellfish, organ meats also have vitamin C. So it's not like you don't get any, but the question becomes: Do we need as much when just, I'd say, over fifty years ago, the vitamin C amount was so small compared to what is required today?
0: Mm, That's a really interesting point. Um, What about magnesium? Is one that so many people are deficient in, and we we kind of think of that more from the plant foods. What what about that one, if somebody was concerned about that? Sure.
1: So the the minerals all work together. They're the spark plugs. They're the things that let um, chemical processes in the body work together. So the main four are sodium, potassium, magnesium, and calcium. And so when you're deficient on one of them, all four of them will get affected. And then there's also vitamins that get affected too. So A lot of times, for example, vitamin D deficiency can actually be a magnesium deficiency. So a lot of people will supplement a lot of vitamin D. Um, It's very controversial. Uh, It's a very controversial topic. But sometimes it's just that you need a lot of um, magnesium instead of the vitamin D. I think that because our soils are becoming depleted of nutrients and even our animals that are eating from the grass, there is just less nutrients from all the monocropping that we're doing. And just that we are not taking care of the earth that we have been given. So I do think that everyone, not just plant-based, not just carnivore, everyone needs to supplement a little bit of magnesium and potassium. Some people may need to do a little bit more sodium. It's rare that people need to do calcium. It's normally another cofactor that's missing, but you have to find that balance for yourself. So I think testing, uh, doing hair mineral tests, or even um, there's like a spectra cell test that you can do to check your balances within the cell. But those things are really important to figure out your... Um, individualized need for these minerals. Not everyone is the same. I can tell you that there are some people I have to recommend magnesium, some people I don't, but it's always through testing. The The symptoms of magnesium versus potassium deficiency are very similar, even with calcium. And so to say, oh, that everybody needs magnesium as a blanket statement, or everybody needs potassium is probably uh, grossly represented. I think you, everyone can do well with some magnesium, everyone can do well with some potassium. But again, there are outliers where that will not make sense. Okay. Oh, okay. But, sorry. Uh, and then in terms was. of food, you can absolutely get magnesium. Um, I think salmon is one. I have a graphic and I can't remember exactly what I wrote in it, but there are certain, um, I, I believe it's salmon that has more of the magnesium. Beef is low in uh, magnesium, unfortunately.
0: Okay. Well, it can't have everything, <laughs> Judy. <Julie. laughs> As much as we'd like it to, um, okay. Your book is kind of set up. Well, your book is an incredible resource. I mean, I, I read in the back how many hours you logged, um, just putting it together, and all of all of the heart, blood, sweat, tears, everything that goes into writing your book. And I will say it's very, it's, it's like a nutritional resource beyond just being about carnivores. So I do want to tell people that because I will use it as a a resource for so many other things than um, just looking at, you know, a carnivore diet. And it was, and it was easy, easy to consume. I I say that because I've read other carnivore books too, that are, that are not as digestible, maybe, even though it's got a lot of information in it, it is digestible. You have like all these fantastic graphics and everything, but it's, it's set up in a way that can, um, explain to somebody if they wanted to do, you know, an elimination diet and, and work with, um, and try an animal-based diet or, or, or a carnivore diet as an elimination diet, kind of how to go about that. And when we were talking earlier about, you know, taking plants out and you were saying, you know, if somebody has this, you would take out oxalates, just kind of the, right. the problems with plants. It's very interesting. If you think about, um, a Therapeutic diets. So most, I would say, most of the therapeutic diets out there. You know, we're both NTPs, and if you were going to take somebody through a um, a therapeutic diet, whether it was GAPS or Autoimmune Protocol or whatever it might be, it is primarily taking out plant foods. Right. You know, the simple carbohydrate, simple carbohydrate diet, and specific. I mean, and all these things. And I don't think anybody ever says that in, a, in that in that way. That these therapeutic diets are mostly based on taking away. Plant foods, yes. and I think that's important for everybody to think about. But if if you were going to um, suggest, and I would suggest people get the book to get the full um, understanding of of how to go through a, a you know a a, a meat based diet or a carnivore elimination diet type thing, but could you just give us some top pointers on how somebody might start that or go about it or some things to keep in mind? Going through that, if they wanted to try it, yes.
1: So I think the power of a meat-only, so the carnivore cure's meat-only elimination diet, and then we also start with ruminant meats. But the reason why it's so powerful is because, like you said, all therapeutic elimination diets, Whole30, GAPS, um, AIP, all of these, the SED, there's the FODMAP, there's so many. They all remove some type of some type or some level of plant-based foods none of them remove meats in the very beginning. They might remove some types of meats, but in general, all of them contain ruminant meats. I think some of them all may contain pork. I can't remember off the top of my head, but if instead of dabbling in everything and just kind of, you know, spinning your tail, if you were to just start a meat only diet and just start with that, and then as you find a new baseline of health, health meaning that you can sleep mostly through the night that you don't really have hormone imbalances, you have normal stools, you have normal um, bowel movements, and then you have normal mood. All of these things are indicators that your health is in good shape, and it's not as much um, of an importance to get tested from that sense. Once you find that baseline, and then you're just like, I want to add other things other than just meat. I'm totally supportive of that. So then you can add. And you could do the reintroduction of that. So then you can add maybe some steamed veggies. And you'll have to figure that out because I think it's very, very individualized. But the power of doing these elimination diets is to, again, just no longer chasing your tail, but figuring out what works and what doesn't work for you. And I think a lot of dieting really stems from your mental health. Meaning that, so in the book, I walk through a lot of how to prepare for this. And it's probably even longer than the actual elimination diet protocol. And it's because you can't just say, okay, I'm motivated. Starting tomorrow, I'm eating only meat. You have to prepare your environment, you have to make everything really ready for you to succeed. So you have to think about, okay, so what am I going to eat for lunch and dinner? Um, what is in my house that is triggering of a food that if when I come back from work, or when I come back from school, um, I'll be tired, and maybe my restraining abilities are a little bit more difficult. So maybe I should just remove that from our house for now. These are all things that you should prepare for before diving into something like this and, and getting a lot of the content where if you are not sure about this diet, let's say you're hitting a bump in the road, and you will absolutely it's very normal to have that on a diet. But having that sort of wherewithal to figure out, okay, no, I heard that this is normal, I just need to do XYZ to get better. So educating yourself about the diet, preparing your environment, preparing your community, right? If you have a friend that when you have a hard day, it's like, oh, it's okay, let's go get some ice cream, or let's go get a a drink of alcohol. That person may not be ideal for you when you're trying to do a meat only diet. You will find so many people that will be opposed to you doing it. So the minute you say you're struggling with it, they will absolutely say, yeah, it's the diet, you should get off it. But instead, find that community that will support you through it. And you have to figure that out again of what's working for you. So getting the environment, the community, and then uh, figuring out what you want to eat and what you enjoy. I think it's so important to figure out what you enjoy. If someone's If someone um, doesn't like beef and you're forcing yourself to eat only beef, um, it may not work for you, right? uh, Diets have to be something that's enjoyable and that you can do long-term. So find the meats that work for you in the beginning. Some people may have to be a lot more strict based on autoimmune issues, but some people, it might just be an addiction. So they may have to focus on, I'm just gonna allow all types of meat, including processed meats, including processed cheeses for now, until I taper down into some of the cleanest meat if I have to do it that way. So figuring out, what works for you, rather than what advocate says, you need to do this, and you need to eat this much, and you need to do, you know, every single dance and stuff. From there, I think it's really just, um, I recommend starting with ruminant meats, because generally, most people do not have an intolerance to ruminants. So that's like beef, elk, lamb, Um, those meats, uh, no matter how unwell you are, most people tolerate it. And I would say that I work with probably the most unwell, um, but most Um, I guess, people that are most wanting to heal. So these people, there are some people that just cannot tolerate pork or chicken. And over time, as they heal, they may be able to, but they can still tolerate beef. And so that's why I start with the ruminant diet. There are just some people that cannot do well with beef, uh, pork and chicken. And it's just the sad reality. Same thing with eggs. There's people that are sensitive to dairy and eggs as well. So there's a level of eliminating that is even stricter than just eating meat only. But again, you have to figure that out for yourself. If you don't struggle with any type of food sensitivities, and you just want to uh, maybe heal insulin resistance, and you're trying to uh, heal metabolic syndrome and reverse type two diabetes, you may be able to eat all types from the very beginning. And that's where I kind of lay out the differences in the carnivore cure protocol. But the goal is over time that you reduce all the foods that may be triggering. And again, always remember that baseline of health. And then as you reach that baseline of health, um, then you can start figuring out what you want to reintroduce. And I kind of talk about the reintroduction in the book as well.
0: Okay, that's great. Do you find that people need digestive support when they do this? Uh, Maybe digestive enzymes or maybe some HCL or something like that? If especially if they're coming off a plant-based. Did you have to do anything like that? I would just think it would be such a shock to, your, yes. <laughs> to your, sister, your your gut. Like, what? What are you doing? You've been eating plants for 12 years and now we're not, you know, like, hello, wake up. So do, do we need to wake up the system with a little digestive support or to people kind of overcome that without
1: it? Yeah, so most people do need digestive supports. I think if you muscle through it, you may be able to get over it. Um, I do know people in the carnivore space that have done that, but they suffered with diarrhea for six months. So I mean, is it worth it? I don't know, right? So I I think, essentially, when for me, for example, when I wasn't eating a lot of meat, or next to no meat, and maybe just some fish, um, I was probably limited in my digestive enzymes for protein. And so I also used a lot of laxatives. So my gut health, my small intestine was likely very permeable. Um, I did a lot of that muscle testing and other things to just kind of get a sense of what's uh, my body needs. And I needed a lot of small intestine support. And that's where our immune health is. That's where also we absorb most of our nutrients. So it made sense why I was getting seasonal allergies every year. And now that I healed my gut, and I eat meat only, I get zero seasonal allergies when I used to take Claritin and these other Zyrtec every single day. Otherwise, my eyes were really itchy. And my nose was constantly, um, I was constantly sneezing. And so I think that it doesn't matter if you, if even if you weren't plant based, I think everyone does good with stomach acid. They said at NTA school that 90% of people are deficient in stomach acid. It's either that your pH is too high, or that you're not producing enough stomach acid. If you suffer from GERD, or you have, um, you've ever had H. pylori, or you have heartburn coming up, you likely need more stomach acid. There are A little bit of nuances with that, if you suffer from H. pylori and ulcers, it's probably not a good idea to take hydrochloric acid because it'll just exacerbate some of that acidity in your lining. And so for those people, they may do better with digestive bitters instead. As they heal, they kind of patch up the lining in their gut, and then they could probably use some more hydrochloric acid. I know it's really nuanced, but essentially, yes, everyone needs more digestive enzymes generally in the beginning because We normally do not eat enough fat. And when we start eating about 60 to 70% fat of your total calories in a day, so that would be like a ribeye plus maybe a tablespoon of butter. If you eat that level of fat, our liver has not been used to producing that much bile to break down the fats. And what you'll end up getting is a lot of loose stools. If you were to take some ox bile or you take some digestive enzymes to break that down and support the liver, you may just have a easier transition to eating this way.
0: Okay. That's what I would think too. Now, um, I kind of want to, I want to circle back to the
1: poop Mm -hmm. because I don't
0: think we totally got that, (laughs) um, maybe settled people's, um, worries about that. So, um, so we may not necessarily need a lot of fiber. Like I really don't do well with a a lot of fiber. It clogs me up. Um, I feel so much better when I eat, um, uh, you know, higher protein in general, but, um, I think that, do you find with your clients who are switching into this, um, into meat based or carnivore that, is there a transition period for, um, being able to go to the bathroom? Do they need and may, and I guess that the digestive enzymes and bile support would also support, um, uh, you know, bowel movements as well, but would they be less? Do we still expect to have one every day? I mean, should we
1: change our expectations about that? Yes. Okay. Uh, Yeah. Um, good question. So, I, w- I would say that if you are going from like a standard American diet or a pretty relatively healthy diet with a lot of plant-based, uh, not a lot of fat and limited amounts of protein, then if you s- switch, you will definitely have a lot more loose stools. Um, Your body just has to get used to eating less fibrous foods, less bulk in your stools. And there will also be a transition in your insulin levels. Insulin is the thing that holds on to more water. So for every glucose molecule or your glycogen you have, you have two water molecules with that. That's why people say that they have a rush of fat loss when they start going low carb, and they start getting in a ketogenic uh, way of burning fuel. So all of that will require a little bit of transition. It's very normal. But just you just may want to take it slow. I think one way that you can support that is maybe you don't go for the fattiest cuts right when you start because it's a little bit of a shock to the system. Obviously, take the digestive enzymes, ox bile, hydrochloric acid, whichever ones um, that work for your situation. But you might just need to take it slow for some people. And again, this will depend on if you're an abstainer or a moderator. For some people, they may have to lower the vegetable load slowly so that they're Um, that their intestines can get used to less and less um, plant-based matter. It really depends on the person. Whereas if you're an abstainer, you might not be able to do that because that little bit of vegetables will make you go uh, search for other types of foods. So figuring that out really makes sense. But once you are transitioned, and I would say that within a month or two, if you're not I'd say a month, but within a month, if you're still having loose stools after that month, you probably need a little bit more support and you gotta figure out what, it might be more macros, it might be a little less fat, figuring out that balance, it might just be that you need a little bit of plants until your liver catches up to producing more bile, um, helping your liver just be able to tolerate that level of fat without um, bulking your stool. So there's a lot of things you can do. But generally, since you're not eating a lot of fiber and a lot of waste matter, you're not going to have these big bulky stools. Now, I do still believe in the Bristol stool chart where your stools should be brown. They should sink and uh, they shouldn't float. There shouldn't be a lot of oil in your toilet. Um, I don't know if this is too graphic, but essentially, you do- <laughs> not here, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want loose stools and you don't want really small pellets. You want um, a middle ground. But it is very normal that your stools will be much, much smaller, and you may not go every single day. I do like my clients to go at least every other day. That helps me to. Uh, know that they are detoxing some of the toxins, like even excess estrogen is released in your poop. So you want to make sure to go. I know there's advocates in the carnivore space that'll say, if you go, don't go five to seven days, it's fine. I don't think that's a true statement.
0: Okay. But I do think it's a matter of thinking about, you know, you're eating less bulk, your body, the, you know, when you're eating, Fat and protein, your body uses that um, very efficiently, or we want it to. It's using so much of the amino acids and and things and and using it to build your body, run your body. And so um, we can't expect it to to, to be big and bulky like we would if we were eating a bunch of junk. Yeah, I would say it's um, like a
1: child's poo. Like a a very very young like a three year old like that would be considered normal. So it's not the size that's the issue. It's more of make sure it's brown, make sure it's not floating, make sure it's not green or gray, uh, because that's oftentimes either too much fat or it's fat, fat malabsorption. But you just want it to sink. You don't want it to be pebbles. You don't want to feel constipated, and. A lot of people, the complaint I'll get is, um, I don't feel like I really went and, but then I'll ask, well, do you feel like you're fully eliminated? And they'll say yes. And so that's the key. It's, you, you know, there's a lot of times where we eat a lot of plant matter and then we feel like we've only, we're not fully eliminating. Um, you shouldn't have that feeling if you're eating meat based, uh, appropriately.
0: Okay. Excellent. I think that would, could be a big hang up for people yes. if they didn't have set some expectations right, right. around that or maybe set them out for some success. Um, okay. Wow. We covered a lot. And um, I think that is a great overview. And we'll, this will give a lot of people a lot to think about. Um, You know, I think it is just so again, counterintuitive to think of doing something like right. this, but we're just seeing more and more healing stories coming out of the carnivore and, uh, you know, the meat animal meat based, um, community. And so I, I really just want everybody to consider it and hear a story like yours. Um, just a, a beautiful, um, healing story and journey. And now you are helping other people. And so it's, Thank you it's fantastic. Before we go, I have to ask yes. you the anchor questions that I ask all my guests. And normally I ask, what is your anchor meal, your one go-to meal? But for you, I really just, I kind of want to have a, I want to hear a day. I want to hear a day in the life of what you're eating. Cause I'm so curious what that's yes. like. Um,
1: so I don't talk about specific macros and it's intentional just because I'm a lot more mindful from coming from an eating disorder space. You know, there was a lot sure. of comparison, but in general, I try to eat a rainbow of meats, meaning that uh, there's no meat off the table. Um, my go-to is probably steak, steak and eggs with butter. But I uh, I veer towards a heavier, um, high-fat carnivore diet, meaning that I will eat a ribeye with maybe a little bit of butter. Sometimes I don't need the butter. Depends on the, the level of, I guess, fat on the meat. Fat helps your hormone health. So when people struggle with thyroid imbalances and uh, all the sex hormone imbalances, I really look into how much protein and fat they're eating, because you both really need both of those for both uh, the thyroid and hormones. And so I stick to a higher fat, I notice it helps me not have triggers or cravings for other things. Um, I eat lots of sardines and salmon and uh, mussels, and I'll eat pork and fish. But in general, I just try to see if like, in at lunchtime, if I ate mostly beef, then at dinner time, I will make sure and try to maybe add some more pork. For example, pork has thiamine in it. Um, it's the one that has the most thiamine, and that's vitamin B1. We need vitamin B1 in order to support our metabolism and break down nutrients. So I know a beef only diet initially can be beneficial, but long term, you want to incorporate, I mean, if you don't do pork, I know a lot of people don't do it for religious reasons. That's fine, then you can do salmon, salmon has the next level, um, highest amounts of B1, or you may have to supplement a little bit. Most people are really deficient in vitamin B1 and B1 is pretty low in a beef diet. So my thing is, you know, I generally try to eat, I'd say like one and a half pounds of meat a day, and then there will always be a variety though. I think that's key to doing carnivore long-term if you choose to do it long-term. Do
0: you eat um, like two meals a day, three meals a day? Does it vary just, I mean, oh, everything yes. based on how hungry you are, but do you kind? you have an average? Yeah,
1: so I eat two meals a day. I started with uh, one meal a day. I don't recommend it just from a di- uh, digestion perspective, just because One, it gives you one time for your body to break down and absorb all the nutrients. And then two, um, as a prior binger, I think it's just giving you the green light to binge, right? So I used to tell my husband, oh my gosh, I can binge and it's like, okay. And then I just restrict for the rest of the time. So you have to know yourself um, as to why you're doing OMAD. If you know it's generally healthy for you, that may be okay. If you have good gut health, that may be okay. But I have seen with so many of my clients that do OMAD, that they're not getting all the nutrients absorbed. And it makes sense if their small intestine or their large intestine needs more support or they don't have enough of the stomach acid to break down the nutrients and prepare it to get absorbed by the small intestine, they get one chance to get all their nutrients in. So for me, I stick to two meals. Um, My clients tend to do two meals and one smaller meal or a snack. Um, So I do two meals. Sometimes I have a snack like a beef stick in in the middle, but generally my uh, day-to-day is two meals a day.
0: Okay. Do you drink coffee?
1: You know, I used to. So I I wrote this really long blog post about how toxic caffeine is for you. And and it is. There's like 30% of your uh the blood that gets to your brain is uh diminished. And so you will just have less uh, fuel for your brain. And so I read did all this stuff, but then I started drinking coffee again and it gave you that oomph when you needed it, but I started noticing several things in my clients. One is it's a fact that blood sugar will go up eat, drinking enough coffee because you um, are stimulating cortisol, and then it's a band aid. So if when I wasn't getting enough sleep, I have young children, um, I would use coffee as my stimulant. But is it ideal for you? Probably not. Um, so now, uh, in the last couple months, I have not been drinking coffee. My energy is pretty normal. I will have like one tea bag of so there's a little bit of caffeine, um, and I'll have that um, on some days, but. Now I do not drink coffee, but I've been very cyclical about it. So I wanted to be very honest. If you are struggling with cortisol imbalances, hormone issues, blood sugar imbalances, it is one thing you can consider removing. When you remove coffee, you are forced to deal with the issues that you have that low energy. So you might need a nap. You might eat. Um, you might need to eat less, uh, more frequent meals. There, there's things that you can kind of circumvent the issue of not having enough coffee, but it will be very individualized. Okay.
0: Um. Okay. And then my other anchor question is what is your anchor verse, which would be a favorite Bible verse or just one that's kind of speaking to you presently? <sighs>
1: Yeah, so I have um, a few. Uh, I would say my biggest one always is Romans 8.31. Um, it gets me through the hard people, the hard shares on the internet, right? So if God is for me, then who can be against me? And that has always been my guiding light ever since I was young. But now more than ever, I I really, really believe that. And I use that um, to the core. But the, another one that's really big for me um, and why I've shifted from just only recommending grass-fed, grass-finished, Pasture raised, obviously those are ideal. It's better for the um, for the animals as well. But I think about Proverbs thirty one eight nine, and it basically says, you know, speak up for those that can't speak for themselves, speak up and judge fairly, and defend the rights of the poor and needy. And I place that on my heart. I really feel compelled to it. I have so many clients that don't have the most money, but they're still doing really well on uh, conventional ground beef. And while it's not the most ideal, ideal, ideal they're still healing. And so I want to advocate for wellness for all I don't think it should be for just the wealthy or just the for a select few that are into their health. I think if we all like all of America just shifted to beef and uh, butter and eggs, which can be very economical, you can buy five pounds of ground beef for less than $3 a pound. And so if you ate that with conventional eggs and butter, and if you can tolerate all of those without sensitivities, um, that is very, very economical, and so I believe that I will stand for the people. It's why I call myself the people's nutritionist. But I believe that wellness can be for all, and I that Bible verse really, really speaks to me of um, you know advocating also for the poor and needy because they don't have a voice. And I believe that we can all heal, and wellness can be for all.
0: I love that, and nobody's ever shared that verse mm-hmm. here, um, and it makes me think about you know. <laughs> speaking to that, um, you know, my husband's a, a grass fed beef cattle rancher, but I agree with you. Like if you, if you, if everybody would change to like a beef and eggs and, um, you know, maybe some, maybe some dairy, if you could tolerate yeah. it, um, it, and stopped eating all of these, um, that would be so much better, whether it's grass fed or conventional, that would be a million times yes. better than the standard American diet, um, by far. Um, and so, I, I agree with you. It should not be a, I hope it would never be a, um, an obstacle. You know, there's also a Bible verse about that, you know, being a stumbling block and being an obstacle. And I wouldn't want, Mm -hmm. I wouldn't want that. I wouldn't want to convey that that's the only way to go that you have to, you know, is it better to eat organic? Is it better to eat grass fed and pastured? Yes. But you can do a lot of healing, Um, just by you know abandoning a standard American diet and, and moving towards these um, these real foods, just real foods in general which include um, these beautiful animal based, animal-based foods um, that God did indeed give to us right um, Judy, thank you so much for taking the time today. Where can people find you and connect with you? Um, if they would like to learn more. I I highly recommend they find you in social media because you share fantastic graphics and information, but tell them the best place to find you. Yes.
1: Thank you. Um, So if you look under uh, Nutrition with Judy, I'm on Instagram, Facebook, uh, Pinterest, as well as I have a blog post and newsletter. I uh, release a Saturday newsletter every week and it shares content and studies that will be, I guess, newer science, but it helps to support people in this way of eating. If there are concerns in the space, like there's people that recommend eating fruit on this way of eating. So I talk about some of the studies and, and then you just um, ideally find ways that that makes sense for you or not. Um, But that's one place. And then my book is Carnivore Cure, and you can find that at Amazon and carnivorecure.com.
0: Awesome. Thanks again for being with us and thank you everybody for listening. I hope you have a healthy and blessed week and I will talk to you soon.